Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. February. And you know what February is? Did you look up there? You see all the hearts? Oh, yes. February. It's all about Valentine's Day. I mean marriage. (laughs) Whoops. Right? So every church across America right now is preaching a Valentine's Day sermon series. I mean, marriage sermon series. Because that's what it's all about, right? So I figured, Gospel House, why not, right? Let's do a marriage sermon series. And so we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 today, if you would like to follow along. And we are going to see what God's Word has to say about Valentine's Day. I mean, marriage. Here we go. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet, such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. That's a good marriage message, isn't it? But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for my own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I was deliberate in choosing this as our marriage passage for today. Because it absolutely destroys everything that we typically make the Bible say about marriage. Doesn't it? 
Now let me say this. I think Jana and I have actually done premarital counseling for half of this church. Not really, but it kind of feels like that sometimes. So some of you have sat through our marriage counseling. Others of you have not, but you're related to someone who has sat through our marriage counseling. And for the rest of you, you'll just have to take my word for it, and you can ask these people. We are very passionate about marriage. We are very passionate about healthy marriages. We think that the church grows as marriages are healthy. And so I don't want to come across as trashing healthy marriage, right? And when we read this passage, that's kind of what it feels like, isn't it? That Paul is just absolutely trashing marriage. But lately, I have seen this trend in the church, and it, it's not even like really recent. It's, it's been happening for a while. But there's this over-priority placed on marriage in the church. And if you are single or if you have never been married, or if you've been married and are no longer married, maybe you've even felt this a little bit, right? The church can push so hard that it almost makes us feel like we're broken if we're not in a relationship with someone else. There's a push and a push and a push for people to get married, young people to get married, even older people who are, are widowed or whatever to, to get remarried. And this sense that if you don't, there's something wrong with you. And that's coming from churches, y'all. And that's what Paul is trying to combat here. He comes across as this curmudgeon who hates marriage, doesn't he? In this passage, this single guy who's resentful that he never got married, that he never found his true love, right? And so now he's taking his revenge, He's exacting his toll. You married people, here I come for you. Listen to this. But, lest we forget, Paul is also the one who gave us 1 Corinthians 13, which is read at every single wedding, right? He's also the one who gave, gave us Ephesians 5, probably the greatest teaching on marriage in the Bible. He's also the one who gave us Colossians 3, another great teaching on marriage. And all of these things, is there, there's not a hint of Paul being against marriage. So what is Paul saying here? Because clearly he is not saying that marriage is a bad thing. He's not saying that, tell me if you've heard this one, marriage is just a cultural institution contrived by societies to oppress women and our sexual desires, right? Have you heard that one before? That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is that there is a very distinct order to our relationships. And that order in our relationships dictates everything in our life. Who is 1 Corinthians 13 really about? Jesus, right? Now, does that mean it's wrong to have it read at weddings? Absolutely not. We talked about this last week, right? When we read Scripture, we can stand on everything in the Word of God as long as we stand, what, in my strength? Nope, nope, nope. As long as I stand in and through Jesus Christ, right? When I read this book, there is no way I can understand it appropriately how I was meant to understand it if I am reading this book outside of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 13 can only be understood 
and it can only be lived as I'm living in Christ, as I'm walking by the Spirit that he's given me to walk in, right? Has anybody actually read 1 Corinthians 13 and thought, like, yeah, I'm going to go do this today? Anyone? It's impossible, right? That kind of love is impossible in 1 Corinthians 13. The only way you can do it is if the Holy Spirit is giving you the power to do it. That's the only way. So you've got to walk in Him. You've got to do it in Christ. Now, this is interesting. So the title of this sermon series actually comes from something that my father-in-law said. And as we got to the end of the James sermon series, remember last week at the end of the James sermon series, we talked about James gives us these encouragements on how we can make it out of this world alive in Christ, right? And one of the things that James really stresses is that we've got to do it together, right? When we pray, we need to pray together. When we, when we sin, we've got to confess our sins with one another. We've got to do life together. And so I actually had in my notes for last week to talk about this, that little, the kingdom of right relationships, and I actually just completely skipped right over it and forgot. And so I think the Holy Spirit had other plans, because then as I sat down thinking, holy moly, what am I going to do for the next sermon series? It's like, wait a minute, the kingdom of right relationships. Let's do a whole series about it, right? Because this is what my father-in-law says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of right relationships. All right, that's where we're going to go this entire month, okay? The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of right relationships. That means there are no wrong relationships in the kingdom of heaven. All right? So, if you find yourself in a wrong relationship, guess where you are not? In the kingdom of heaven, right? There's this, there's this tension. We've talked about this in the past before, but there's this awkward tension for Christians living today. Because we are currently, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who have accepted him as our Savior, those of us who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which you cannot believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah without the Holy Spirit, right? So we are living in the kingdom of heaven right now. That's what the Bible tells us. But there's this odd tension in that because we're also not completely there yet. And so we as Christians are in this kind of weird in-between where we can live fully in the kingdom of heaven, but yet that kingdom is not completely realized yet. And so it's this awkward in-between stage, right? So we have to make a decision. Do we walk in the kingdom of heaven, which we can only do by walking in the Spirit, right? All through Galatians, all over the place where Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh, right? That's living in the kingdom of heaven, walking by the Spirit, listening to him, obeying him. That's the kingdom of heaven. The flesh over here is not the kingdom of heaven, right? And we've got to be careful how we define that. We've hit on this a lot lately, right? There's God's way, and there's man's way. The problem we have, Jesus says, narrow is the road, right? Right? And then wide is the road that leads to destruction. And so, there's God's way, which is the narrow road. And then everything else, y'all, is man's way. That's what makes the Bible so tricky. That's what makes legalism impossible if you're actually paying attention. Because there is no possible way for a human being to walk the narrow road in his or her own strength. We have to depend on him. And when we walk that narrow road, we are living in the kingdom of God. 
but that's a kingdom of right relationships. You know, there's that awkward passage in Matthew, it's in the Beatitudes, but where Jesus says, if you're going to the altar to present a sacrifice or an offering, and you remember that you have a sin against your brother or sister, what's he say? Keep going and give God your money. <laughs> no, right? He doesn't say that. He says, stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. I can imagine if he were doing it, telling us, if Jesus were telling us this today, he'd be like, hey, you know, Lexa, you're scheduled to, to lead worship today. If you get up on that stage and you remember you've got something against somebody, actually, Jesus even ups the ante. He doesn't even say you have something against. He says someone has something against you. Your brother or sister has something against you. Stop. Don't sing a single note. Go and be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your offering, right? Why does Jesus say that? Because the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of right relationships. If we are going to live in God's kingdom, we have got to get this right, don't we? That means that there is no strife among brothers or sisters in Christ who are living in the kingdom. There is no anger, there is no jealousy, no coveting, all of those things, they don't exist in God's kingdom. When God gives us those pesky Ten Commandments, that was in our Bible in a year plan today, if you guys have read it yet, if not, spoiler alert. But those Ten Commandments, that's right relationship, right? Live in right relationship, and it all starts with a right relationship with God. We have to start here. We cannot start anywhere else. This feels kind of like one of those duh sermons, right? You get those sermons and it's like, okay, pastor, half of you are checked out right now. I'm going to take a little nap because it's dark in here and I need some sleep. But guys, sometimes it's the duh sermons that we need the most. Because if we're paying any attention during our last sermon series, James came with the haymakers, right? You say you believe it, so why aren't you doing it? Right? A right relationship with God is the foundation for every other relationship that you have. We talked about this last week, but this, this idolization that the church makes of marriage and how, you, you know, I actually had a friend who was, he wanted to be a youth pastor in a church and he went to all of these different churches but none of them would hire him because he was a single man, and they wanted a couple. Every church, y'all, because we've got this, this idolatry of marriage, and that for some reason, marriage makes us a stronger powerhouse. Y'all, Paul wasn't married. I mean, when you want to talk about influential people in the New Testament, I think you got Jesus, and then, I mean, it's like a mile between Jesus and the next person, right? Nobody, no question. But like, of, of not Jesus, Paul's like top of the list, right? He wrote half the New Testament, all of those letters. He wasn't married, and you're not going to hire him because he's not married, right? Marriage doesn't fix your problems. Paul's saying here it makes them a little worse sometimes, right? If you get this priority off, you do not need to be married. Single people, you don't need to be married to be in the kingdom of God. 
You don't need prospectively to be married. You don't need to be constantly, you know, and this is what we force in, in our youth and our children. This, this, you know, oh, I got to get married. I got to get married or else I'm broken. You don't have to be married to be happy. You don't have to marry to be complete. I know there's the whole Jerry Maguire, you complete me, right? This is what we talk about in our mar- marriage, premarital counseling all the time. It's baloney, y'all. Your husband or wife does not complete you. It's a lie. Because that would, that would be to say that you aren't enough on your own. And Jesus says, with me, you are enough. You don't, you don't need a spouse. Now, if you have a spouse, that's great. Take on the world together, right? But marriage isn't going to fix your problems. So let's listen to this warning that Paul gives us. Let's get our relationship with God first and then see where he leads us in regard to every other relationship. So here's how we get our relationship right with God. Paul lays it out for us. First, we see the priority that a relationship with God has to take. Second, we see the problem with that priority. And then we see the position that we must be in to get in it. And they're all P's. Isn't that nice? Alliteration. Yay. Perfect. Yes. All right. First up, this is the duh, right? What priority does a right relationship with God have to take in our lives? And you all know the answer, right? Numero uno. Number one. We say it. We know it. But do we do it? Paul says... This I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Be careful. This passage does not say, Paul is not saying that because the time is short, husbands, Pretend you're not married, go to the casinos, go to the bars, live it up, have a good time. That's not the teaching, right? Right? Because when we look at this, I think that's what a lot of, not that we jump to the bars and casinos, but a lot of us read this and we're like, oh, oh, well, I never, Paul. I live as if I'm not married. Paul wouldn't tell a single person to go hang out at the bars and casinos, right? So why in the world is he telling husbands to do it? And that's not what he's saying. So let's, let's not be idiots when we read the word of God, right? Say that to yourself next time you open your Bible. All right, Jeremy, don't be an idiot. God, what you got for me, right? Paul is saying here, though, that God comes first. Even when you're married, God comes first. And when we put it in context, we see that, right? Because what's God saying? He's saying even when you're weeping, don't let that overtake you. God still comes first. Even when you're rejoicing, don't let that overtake you. God still comes first. Even when you're buying, possessing, using the world, God still comes first. Talked about this in the James series, right? James warns us over and over again about riches, right? About wealth and the problem with wealth. That does not mean that that wealth and possessions are inherently evil. 
What it means is, and we talked about this last week, treasures come in a variety of forms, right? It's not all money. They can come in a variety of forms. The problem is these treasures tempt us to put God second, don't they? And the treasure list that Paul gives us includes some things that are a little goofy, right? Nobody would look at weeping as a treasure, right? But y'all, you probably know some people, and if you don't know somebody, you are the person. Congratulations. You get so caught up in your mourning, you get so caught up in the current problem that you're in or your current crisis that you forget to put God first, right? Crisis takes over, and all of a sudden, and, and you, again, you all know this person. If you don't, you are the person who is always in crisis mode, right? They can't survive without having some crisis. Now, they go around telling everybody how much they hate drama, but everybody's like, mm, you are the drama, <laughs> right? But weeping has to take a back seat to God, even when you are going through the most painful experience of your life. And look, that's hard, isn't it, y'all? Right? Has anybody ever walked through, I mean, you just walked through a storm, and it's just hammer after hammer after hammer. God says, I still must come first. He didn't say not to weep, right? But he says, I still come first. And then there's all of these other things. Now, Paul's taking a very Jesus-esque approach to this right here. When he's showing us the priority here, when he says, those who weep as if they did not weep. You know, he's going to these extremes, okay? Because the Bible nowhere teaches that we are to not weep. I know that's a current popular teaching in churches. Oh, just pretend everything's okay. Fake it till you make it, right? That's not biblical, not at all. So it do, the Bible doesn't teach not to weep. So when Paul says, do not weep, when he says, pretend that you're not married, he's not saying, pretend you're not married. He's saying, get the priority right. Jesus did the same thing in Luke 14. It says, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my own disciple. Once again, I'll point this out. Jesus' church growth strategy, right? The crowds start getting a little large, and so he just drops an atomic bomb. Says, <laughs> you guys think you want to follow me? All right, here's what you got to do. And drops this, and everybody's like, well, see you, Jesus. I'm out. But look, guys, Jesus is the word of God, right? We're told that in, in John, the beginning of John's gospel. Jesus is the word of God who put on flesh, right? That's what John tells us. So Jesus, being the word of God, is not going to mishandle the word of God, right? So when he teaches this, if you're going to come to me, you've got to hate your family. That would contradict every single teaching in the Old Testament about family, right? So Jesus isn't saying literally go hate your own family. That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying, God has to be number one. Jesus has to be number one. And y'all, there can be no close seconds. It's not like God's right here and then marriage is right here, you know, just a shade under it. 
can't happen. There's got to be God, and then there's got to be miles, and then your next priority. And the funny thing about it is that Jesus really isn't asking your opinion on it, is he? Man, those James haymakers keep coming out, right? I thought we were going to have a nice light-hearted sermon series after James, and everybody's going to leave here happy. You know, we're kind of spoiled today because every time you get your car serviced, go in for an oil change, and I get to fill out a 50-minute survey on how they did and get to tell them every little thing that I liked and disliked about how they changed my oil, right? Jesus doesn't do that. Have you noticed that? I would highly suggest if you get a Bible and at the end of the Bible there's a survey asking what you liked and didn't like about the Bible, you probably want to get rid of that Bible because it's not a good one. God doesn't ask our opinion on things, does he? He says, Jeremy, your relationship with me needs to be number one, and there can be nothing else that is even close. Not your marriage, not your children, not your finances, not your possessions, not your relationships with the world, right? That's what Jesus says, and it makes sense. Because when he was asked, what did the word of God say was the greatest commandment? What did he say? One of them, a teacher or a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Now, because Jesus puts that second one in there, we get this false idea that, okay, so God's here and then neighbor's like right here, right? Because he included both of them. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus says that love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says that that is the great and foremost commandment. That's it, y'all. That's it. That's the one. Love your neighbor as yourself falls under that and significantly under that. So since February is marriage month, created by Hallmark, Jana and I don't celebrate Valentine's Day, just so you all know. We don't. I don't believe in it. We also don't shop at Hobby Lobby. Just kidding. Jana actually really loves Hobby Lobby. I just like to make fun of Hobby Lobby. But since this is marriage month, let me ask you, husbands, does your wife fall in Lord your God commandment or love your neighbor commandment? Wives, does your husband fall under Lord your God commandment or love your neighbor commandment? Right? Now, I know we like to think, like, well, yeah, but I love my wife more than I love my neighbor. Good, you should, right? But here's the thing. She or he still cannot get anywhere near God. It's got to be clear-cut. And yet, the problem that I have right now is that, you know, Jana and I, since, since we've done so, many, so much marriage counseling, premarital counseling, all this stuff, we've read a ton of books on it. We've watched workshops, videos, like all the things. 
And my issue that I have is that in every single marriage seminar, marriage workshop, marriage book, everything that you get, God gets a byline in the marriage book. He's lucky if he gets a chapter. Most of the time, it's a sentence somewhere in the introduction. It, well, I mean, everybody knows that if you don't have a right relationship with God, your marriage won't be successful. Now let's get to the six practical steps that Jeremy says will make him a million bucks. Right? But here's the thing. What does the Bible say? Because the Bible says if you get commandment one right, you're going to get all the rest of them right. This, this, is, this is really foolish. We've talked about this before. This is Jeremy's multi-million dollar book that I'm going to sell, right? And it's going to say this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Nobody's going to buy that book because it's plagiarism. I would be plagiarizing Jesus, although his stuff might be public domain by now, I think actually, so maybe I'm good. But nobody's going to buy the book, right? Because we as Christians love to complicate things, right? Because see, underlying all of this is that if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, whose kingdom and whose righteousness has to go bye-bye? Mine, right? I have to give up my kingdom. I have to give up what I think is my righteousness. I have to give up my, this is super popular in America, my rights, right? My freedoms, right? Jesus doesn't give a rip about your rights and freedoms. He wants you to walk in his kingdom and in his righteousness, that doesn't mean it's not great that we have rights and freedoms here in our country. I will take them any day of the week. But that's inconsequential to Jesus because there are plenty of Christians who have zero rights and zero freedoms and they are still living in God's kingdom. Probably a little better than some of us, right? All of this is his and that means that all of it has to be done his way. And it really, this is a super quick point, because <laughs> I don't think anybody really needs me to analyze this, right? That's the problem, isn't it? That is our problem, and we hit on it over and over again. We talked about it over and over again in the book of James. You know, James specifically calls out three different times riches. Riches are the problem, but it's not because riches are the problem. It's because riches are the distraction, right? Riches, possessions, wealth, like power and prestige and popularity, those are all things that become either close seconds or, if we're really not paying attention, more important to us than God, right? More important than obeying God is my popularity, me becoming popular. More important than me obeying God is that promotion at work. More important than me obeying God is me providing for my family. Right? All the things. Just happens to be in second or in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, you know, James hits you up on the riches. I'm going to hit you up on marriage. Because if you're not 
paying attention, your responsibilities to your spouse can very quickly jump your responsibilities to Jesus. And God says you can never let that happen. But listen, y'all, we have got to be real, right? We've got to be real about the things that we struggle with. And I'm going to take a, a little sidebar here because uh, actually Michael sent me an article this week from Apple News, and it was about the reason why people are leaving the church in droves. They've had more churches close recently than any other time in the history of the United States. Churches are just closing their doors left and right, and people are just leaving. Ever since the pandemic, people just aren't coming back to church. We've kind of survived without it, and so it's kind of like, well, I guess I don't really need that. And so they're not coming back. And, you know, i got to be honest, I, I, I've read a ton of those studies. And y'all, listen, I'm going to tell you this from the beginning. They have said from the beginning of time that Christianity was not going to succeed. Every generation, every, you know, everywhere, you know, as, as soon as we get scientifically advanced enough, it's going to wipe out Christianity and we're not going to need it anymore. Yet, here we are, right? There's nothing that has stopped the kingdom of God. And there is nothing that will stop the kingdom of God, right? It's kind of like watching stocks, right? You get your dips and people come and people go, you know, Jesus dropping these atomic bombs on people, getting them to leave, right? It, God's not worried about it. He's not sitting up there wringing his hands like, oh, jeez, guys, people are leaving the church, right? He's not sweating it. And so, you know, you got to read these things with a grain of salt. Some people read these things and they flip out, right? Deep breath. It's all going to be okay. God's kingdom still stands. It's still going to stand. He's coming back someday, and we are going to be ready. But our goal still should be to have as many people ready with us as possible, right? And so we've got to understand people leaving the church. When we see these articles about people reading the church, we should take note. Why are they leaving the church? And I think there's one common thread in all of it. Because you hear a bunch of different excuses, but I think there's one common thread. There's this quote, it often gets attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I don't know if it actually was him, um, but it, nevertheless, it strikes a chord with how I think people feel about the church today. This is what it says. He says, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Y'all, this is why people are leaving the church today. In no way do I think that this is a condemnation, you know, on Jesus, them saying that they don't want Jesus. I think more than any other time in the history of this country, I think people are ready for Jesus, especially after the pandemic. I think people are ready for real relationship. But I think what is happening right now is people aren't saying, I don't like your Jesus. They're saying, I don't like your church. I don't want to come somewhere on a Sunday morning and sit with a bunch of fake people. I don't want to sit in a room with a bunch of hypocrites who are going to say that they should do one thing, but then go out the doors and do something exactly opposite. This isn't new, y'all. This has been the problem the world has had with Christians for a long time. But our issue in the United States specifically is that when we talk about this kind of stuff, Christians, we have two reactions. First Christian rolls up his sleeve and says, come on, come say it to my face. Huh? Huh? You want to take shots? Come on! 
Come, come to church on Sunday morning. Come to my church on Sunday morning and come in here and say it to my face. Yeah, you think you're so smart now? That's a real great way to draw people to Jesus, huh? And then the other reaction is, I read this and I see that people are rejecting Jesus because of the way I live my life. And I tear my clothes and I repent, and I weep, and I mourn, and I say, God, help me do better. That's what we got to be about, church, but it starts with us right here in this room being real with each other, right? No faces. What you see is what you get. You know, we get so scared. If I tell somebody what's really going on inside, they're going to run, there's no way they'll accept me. Y'all, if we are going to live in the kingdom of God, if this is a kingdom of right relationships, we'll get to this when we talk about our relationships with others, it's got to be covenantal, which means that there is nothing anyone else can do that will make you push them away. Church, we have got to be a church. Gospel house, we have got to be a church with open arms that accepts everyone. And no matter what their story is, we bring them in and we say, look, I don't have this Jesus thing figured out either. I am walking with him just the same as you are. But let's walk together. You've got things you need to fix. I've got things I need to fix. Let's walk together. Y'all, I don't know a person in the world who is going to turn that invitation away. Not a person in the world. Because that's how Jesus came to people, right? That's what Jesus said. So we've got to be about it. All right, that's my sidebar. Paul's warning on our problem. He says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how, may, how she may please her husband. Again, Paul is not saying that it's wrong to please your husband. He's not saying it's wrong to please your wife. But he is saying that marriage, for as wonderful as it is, can be such a dangerous temptation to put God second. Even if God still remains first, marriage can still get too close to being second, too close to that relationship. If his kingdom is not first in your life, there is a major problem. And if it isn't first by a long shot, there is still a problem. The good news, this isn't new. Genesis 3, if you aren't familiar with your Bible, that's three chapters into the book, right? God doesn't waste any time showing how screwed up we are, does he? It gets created, we ruin it. That's the Bible. But this is what happens. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her, her husband with her, and he ate. What happened to Adam and Eve? What was their first sin? You know, we can go through and we can speculate, well, what fruit was it? Was it an apple? Was it a pear? 
Was it forbidden fruit? Ooh, that sounds spicy. It doesn't matter, right? Adam and Eve stopped putting God's kingdom first. They loved the idea of their way. They loved the idea of their knowledge more than they loved the way of continuing to do things God's way. Does that sound familiar? Why did Adam eat the fruit? Right? We can split hairs all day long. Well, whose fault was it, right? It was all Eve's fault. All oh, the women, it's the women's fault, right? Stop. If anything, when I read this passage, I think more on Adam than anybody else. Because it says specifically, Eve ate the fruit, and Adam who was with her, right? Look, if Adam was a, if li- living in the kingdom, he should have slapped that fruit out of Eve's hand and said, absolutely not. Right? But he didn't. He went along with it. He put his relationship with his wife above his relationship with God. And they fell, both of them. Marriage is for suckers, y'all. Just kidding. It's not. Hey, don't miss this in this whole thing. I know we're railing on marriage right now. Don't miss this. God wouldn't have given us the gift of marriage if it wasn't worth it, right? And so it's worth it. I'm not discouraging anyone from getting married. (laughs) I'm not discouraging, well, marriage at the gospel house, 99%. Everybody got divorced except for Jeremy and Jana. That's not what I'm saying, right? Don't do that. But it's worth it. But we've got to be careful. We have got to be careful. That's the warning in all of this. That's the problem in all of this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what we talked about last week. And your treasure can be anywhere. That's what makes this world such a tricky battlefield. Because it can literally, your heart can be put in anything. And if it's anything other than God, it's wrong. So we've got to do whatever it takes to keep our heart in check. Which brings us to our position. We have to position ourselves to be in right relationship with God. And this is a deliberate choice that we have to make every single day. How do we get ourselves in the position to have a right relationship with God? Because like we said, until we do, we will not get any other relationship right. You will not get any other relationship right until your relationship with God is right. That's your marriage, that's your friendships, that's your parenting, whatever relationship it is. It will never be as good as it could be, as good as God created it to be, if you don't get your relationship with God right. So how do we get there? We talked about this in the book of James, but what does it take to draw near to God, right? Paul says this, He says, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Look, this is Paul's check, right? He's saying, look, I'm railing on you here. Married couples, I'm giving you the jab, right? I'm warning you, but I am not saying this to restrain you. I'm not saying this to make you do something that you don't want to do, right? 
I'm saying this because we all must have undistracted devotion to the Lord. Listen, y'all, if your marriage is a distraction to your relationship with the Lord, you've got to have a serious talk with your spouse. Right? Because when your marriage is working the way it's supposed to, your marriage should help you to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Right? If marriage is operating the way that God created it to operate, it should be securing that undistracted devotion, not distracting you from it. Right? And this goes with any other relationship you have. Can you see why God has to come first? Because if raising your children, this is going to sound funny, if raising your children is a distraction, (laughs) and every parent says, this pastor has no idea what he's talking about. I have kids. Give me a break. I know. But if raising your children is a distraction to your devotion to the Lord, You've got to sit down with your kids. You've got to sit down with your husband. You've got to come up with a plan to figure this out. Y'all, parents, your kids cannot come in between you and the Lord. And they shouldn't, because that's not how God created parenting. That's not how he created children. Your, your children should help you to pursue the Lord. And, and can, I, can I, I push your buttons here, parents? But can I just push you? If your parents are distracting you, if their sports schedules are distracting you, if, if cooking dinners and raising them and all that stuff is distracting, scale back. Bring it back. Have them help you. Have, do stuff together. Be on mission with your children together. It doesn't mean stop playing sports. It doesn't mean stop cooking dinner and only order out. I would love that, but that's not what it means. That's not true. Jana cooks really well. But what it does mean is be intentional about how you disciple your kids. Use their sports schedule as a mission field. Tell your kids that when they play these sports, they're on mission. Have them help you cook dinner and talk about the Lord while you're doing it. Find moments in your day with your kids to disciple your children. To listen to your kids and what God's saying to them. Y'all, God drops some truth bombs through my kids. Sometimes it's a little too much, like, ooh, Elam, stop talking, please. I don't want to hear that right now, right? But we assume that because they're children, they can't speak through the Spirit, right? False. Don't just teach your kids about Jesus. Let them teach you about Jesus. Listen to them, but be deliberate with them. I was reminded when I was putting this together, there's this really good quote from A.W. Tozer, and it really puts in perspective whether or not our relationship with God is right or whether it's not right, whether we're in that right position or not. But he says this, says, The final test of love is obedience. It's not sweet emotions. It's not willingness to sacrifice or zeal but obedience to the commandments of Christ. Our Lord drew a line, plain and tight, for everyone 
to see. Jesus says the same thing. This is in the Gospel of John. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, because who would listen to anything Judas Iscariot says, right? Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. It's like James is back, right? Put your money where your mouth is. You say you love God, then do what he says. You say that God is number one and that there is no one in close second, then do what he says. And y'all, you need the Holy Spirit to do that, right? Anyone who has ever tried to do this Jesus stuff on their own, in their own power, you're, you're, you're not paying attention because you cannot do this in your own strength. You will get it wrong again and again and again and again. The only way Jesus says we can get it right. Guys, this, these, this is red letter stuff, right? We're not pulling this from some obscure book in the Bible and paraphrasing and misquoting and putting it out of context. This is Jesus on his way to be crucified says you need the Holy Spirit to even understand how much God loves you to even understand the depths of our Father's love for us. You need the Holy Spirit. You will never be able to keep His word if you're not walking in the Spirit. And what does God's word say? I think probably the best summary of what God's word says to us. Micah 6.8. This is a Highlight, underline, memorize, do it all Bible verse. If you haven't memorized this one, highly suggest that you memorize it. But it's the simplest breakdown of how to follow God. God says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God has told you what's good, y'all. And what is it that he requires of you? Do justice. Love, kindness, or mercy. It's not enough time in this sermon for this one, but that word right there is the Hebrew word hesed. Highly suggest you check that word out. Go home and do a Google search on hesed. H-E-S-E-D. It's one of the most powerful Hebrew words in the Bible. Love has said this kindness, this mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That was how James said that we draw near to God, right? You've got to be humble. We cannot walk in the Spirit if we're going to be prideful, right? God will smash that every time. The only way to walk in the Spirit is to do so with humility. 
the only position that we can take to show that we are in right relationship with God is a position of humble obedience. It's kind of a buzzkill, isn't it? When you've got Hallmark and Disney telling you, just wait for true love's kiss, right? And Pastor Jeremy's sitting up here saying, nope, humble obedience. I think I like Disney's version better. I'll just fall asleep for a couple hundred years and wait for my princess to come and kiss me and wake me up. But Jesus says, humble obedience. Back to A.W. Tozer as we close. I remember this is years ago, I was listening to a Mark Batterson sermon. Uh, he was preaching a sermon series on marriage, and there recently, I don't know if it was recent or not, but there's a biography that somebody did on the life of A.W. Tozer. And there were some parts in that biography that weren't necessarily flattering toward Tozer. Uh, I have not read it, so I don't really know. I'm probably not going to read it. But uh, this one passage uh, that he talked about uh, definitely was not flattering toward Tozer. Um, but it had to do with his marriage. And in, in this interview that this person who was writing the story did, he, he interviewed his wife after Tozer had passed away and she was remarried. And they just asked, like, hey, you know, how are things going or whatever? And this was her quote. She said this. She said, I have never been happier in my life. Aiden, who is Tozer, loved Jesus Christ. But Leonard Odom, who was her current husband, loves me. In this sermon, Pastor Batterson, he wondered whether or not Tozer had gotten it right. Because he said... You know, for somebody to miss the mark that bad at home, if he had loved God so well, for him to get home and fail to love his wife, did he really get his walk with God right? But y'all, I'm not so sure that Tozer is the one who missed it. You know, there's this interesting psychological thing that we do. It's called emotional blackmail. And in emotional blackmail, we... we have these feelings and we tell the other person that because of my feelings you're wrong and you can't argue against it but in this specific situation listen i don't know who aw tozer i couldn't even tell you her name i have no idea who her wife was let alone what her walk with jesus was like i don't know what aw tozer's walk with jesus was like i look at some of the sermons he preached and the things he did and the books he wrote and i assume that it's good but y'all there have been a lot of Christians who have written some really good stuff about God who ended up being complete trash on the inside, right? Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs when he talks to the Pharisees, right? They look real good on the outside. They've got a lot of good stuff to say, but on the inside, it's rotten away, y'all. And I'll be the first to admit, I hope you guys think that I do a decent job talking about Jesus up here, but sometimes when I get home, y'all, Jana gets the worst, right? <laughs> she gets the ugly side of Jeremy. When I'm angry and I'm fed up and I've had enough, she tends to get the brunt of that. I'd like to think that I make it up by being kind other times, but, you know. But here's the thing. Just because Tozer's wife didn't feel loved does not mean that she was not loved. Right? Just because I feel a certain way does not mean that that's the reality of the situation. We play into that a lot in our society today. That's why emotional blackmail, right? Because my feelings trump everything else. 
and you can't get out of it. There's nothing that the accused can do to get out of that situation. And it's not fair, right? But that's what we do with love, right? That's what we do with God. Because we've got Hallmark Channel, especially around the holidays. We've got Disney, you know, telling us marriage is supposed to be this this rapturous feeling of love and it's this epic love story and your husband constantly sweeping you off your feet and whisking you away to these magical places, right? And we read these books on how to build a successful Christian marriage that say, never stop dating your spouse. Number one advice, if you take your spouse out on a date every week, and if you do that, your marriage will thrive. Stop it, Hallmark. Stop it, Disney. Stop it, whoever else, because that's not how God loves. It's not about showy displays of affection, right? Y'all are sitting around waiting to feel God's love for him to send you a bouquet of flowers. It's not happening. I I guess I shouldn't say that. Maybe it will. Maybe you'll get a bouquet of flowers from God today. I don't know. But that's not how God does it, y'all. And if we continue to look to God to love us like the world loves, we're going to be disappointed every time. And shame on us, church, because that's what we've reduced the cross to, isn't it? The cross isn't salvation anymore. It's an epic love story of Jesus who came down and braved the odds and hung up on a cross. It's not not a love story, right? Jesus hung on the cross because he loves you. But don't reduce it to an emotion. Jesus hung on the cross to be your savior, not your lover. Are there emotions involved in it? Absolutely. You should feel emotion when you look at that sacrifice that he made. But he didn't do it for your emotions. He did it for your soul to save you. We look at these sweet emotions and these loud and flashy signs. And we play into them. But I love this passage. It comes from Zephaniah 3.17. It says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I love what Zephaniah sneaks in there, and we miss it because we're not even paying attention, right? says that God will exalt over us with joy. He ends with that he's going to rejoice over us with shouts of joy. But in the middle, he sneaks in. He will be quiet in his love. And we skip right over it every time because we don't understand it. What does a quiet love look like? I'm so glad you asked because that's God's love. His love is a quiet love. Our world celebrates flashy love, right? You're told over and over again we have movies that promote adultery, right? You should cheat on your spouse. You should go after the relationship that feels good and it's the moment, it's now, oh, it's passion and That's what we want. But yet, what do we celebrate as the world? We don't celebrate fiery passion. Nobody has 50th adultery anniversaries, right? Congratulations, guys. I cheated on my 50th person. Right? 50th wedding anniversaries. We celebrate consistent, deep, 
quiet love that endures, right? That's what we celebrate. Stop chasing flashy love. Stop chasing, stop expecting God to be flashy and look for his quiet love, his love that is patient, his love that is kind, that isn't jealous, that doesn't boast or brag, that's not arrogant, that doesn't act unbecomingly, that's selfless, that isn't provoked, that doesn't count wrongs, that doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Quiet love that bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. Flashy love will never get you there, y'all. But quiet love never fails. You need the Holy Spirit to see it. But just like a noisy, bubbly brook is shallow, that's what noisy, shallow love is. But God calls you to a deep, steady, strong, consistent love. Love like a river, right? That is carved out over time through trials and hardships. That endures, that lasts. That's God's love. That's the love that we need to see. Because that's the foundation that God uses to build his kingdom of right relationships. If you want to live in God's kingdom, you have got to do it in right relationship. And that starts with right relationship with God. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you, and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.